Welcome to the dinner party. This is your icebreaker. A baby seal walks into a club. That's my favorite show. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. You just got a joke from Tim Burton, director of many films, including The Nightmare Before Christmas, yeah. which is on our producer Jackson Musker's list of best films ever. And that's appropriate because this is our first annual, very special end of the year list show. We will be hearing from David Wallachinsky, author of the famous Book of Lists, plus master list maker A.O. Scott, film critic for The New York Times. Also, The Onion shares their list of this year's best fake news. Fader Magazine lists songs you'll be listening to next year. We list food trends. The list goes on and on, really. Yeah. But first, the news list. Except you're actually listening to a podcast, so you get to skip the news, you luckies. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Welcome to The Dinner Party, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. And this is our first annual list show, where we look back on 2011 and ahead to 2012 through the lens of lists. Yes. Now, there are to-do lists, Mm -hmm. do-not-call lists. Negative guest lists. Negative guest lists. I don't know what that is. Maybe just for me. (laughs) Yeah. But no lists are as popular as end-of-the-year lists, and we have a bunch of them for you coming up, courtesy of New York Times film critic A.O. Scott, The Onion, and more. But first, to get us started, we're joined by David Wallachinsky. He is a historian, he's been a commentator for the Olympics, and perhaps most famously, he's the author of The Book of Lists. And that was a book that originally came out in 1977, and it was a sensation based on its form and its content. Some of the lists that included were things like famous people who died during sexual intercourse. Yes. People suspected of being Jack the Ripper. Sure. And, and David, I wanted to ask you, where did you get the idea for this book? And if you could try to tell us why it was such a sensation at the time. Uh, my father, Irving Wallace, and I had done a book that was published in 1975 called The People's Almanac, mm-hmm. kind of a surprise bestseller. We asked people to write to us. I think we were in the forefront of uh, reader uh, feedback. Yeah. And it turned out that the most popular chapter in The People's Almanac was our chapter on lists. So we got the idea that uh, why don't we do an entire book of lists uh, it came out and sold four million copies. And, and now I feel like we've got a popular culture of lists. You've got lists everywhere. Yeah. I hope you don't blame me too much for that. But <laughs> I think there's, there's several reasons why lists are so popular both then and now. Uh, I think that we live in an uh, age of too much uh, information. Mm-hmm. And lists give you a chance to organize that. And also, of course, there's the lists that you can argue about. Ten favorite movies, or I, for many years, did for... Uh, Parade Magazine, the 10 Worst Living Dictators. or You know, you can argue about these things, and people have different opinions. See, I'd yeah. like to hear the 10 Best Living Dictators. <laughs> uh, yeah, well. <laughs> so I have a question. I mean, maybe it relates to that. Can lists be dangerous? Because, you know, when you organize information like that, it kind of strips away nuance, and I think it can give someone a false sense that they understand something that they don't. Well, if, if people think that they've gained full knowledge from a list, yes, you're absolutely right. Uh, mind you, in, in the book of lists, we have what we call annotated lists. We at least tell you, you know, something about the entry. I will point out, though, you know, since you, me- you mentioned it, I said for many years I did the worst dictators for Parade, yeah. and then this year for the first time they did it without me. They, they assigned it to a staff writer. What was disturbing was that, unlike my list, they left out all the dictators who were pro-American. Oh, oh wow. And so you're right. Yeah, I, a list can be deceiving. That's interesting. And, of course, lists change over time, too. You know, the knowledge of that's contained in the list is so fleeting in a way. It's really a, a snapshot in time. That's right. For example, if you were to do a list of of the planets, you could no longer include Pluto. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's true. Um, uh, you know, speaking of a time when Pluto was a- an actual planet, <laughs> at the time you published this book, it was radical, but now on the internet, lists are kind of the primary delivery system for information in a lot of ways. <laughs> Do you have any idea whether this is kind of a fad? Are people going to get exhausted by this and move on, you know, go back to encyclopedias or something? Uh, evidently not. I think that, you know, people have uh, shortened attention spans. Simple as that. I don't think that lists are going to go away. You know, I used to collect uh, other people's book of lists. I had over a hundred of them. You know, people did on special subjects. Lists you know. of lists. 
yeah, you know, Minnesota Vikings Book of Lists or something like that. And now, I, as you say, it's on, on the internet. There's just so much of it. I don't see it going away. So, I, you know, you mentioned that you collect some of these books. I imagine you must be a magnet for all things list, or at least when this first came out. What are some of the strangest lists you've encountered? Well, we've done five different editions of the Book of Lists. And the, the most recent one, it got published all over the world. And each country was allowed to do, they could add their own lists. Okay. And I particularly liked some of the ones uh, in the Canadian Book of Lists. My favorite one was beaver-related events in Canadian history. <laughs> that really made me feel good, particularly since I had once done a list on sausage-related events in history. <laughs> you know, I, I like lists that you can't just look up, where you really have to think about it. I mean, in the, before the Internet, I used to... Uh, you know, just keep files for strange topics. And if I could, it would sometimes take me years to get enough good entries to actually publish a list of where I felt it was good enough to publish. Well, look, we are about to embark on an all-list show, and we would love it if you would regale us with one of your favorite lists. I don't know if you have the beaver one handy. <laughs> I don't have the beaver one with me, but instead of reading a whole list, because they are long, I can read you uh, entries in some of them. For example... I did a list on 12 timely deaths. All right. Mm. You know how people are always, you read somebody's obituary, he died an untimely death. <laughs> and so I, I started thinking, is there such a thing as a timely death? Perfect. Yeah. Perfectly timed. And uh, I think my favorite is the death of Arnold Schoenberg, the Austrian composer. And I'll, I'll read you the entry. Okay. Right. Uh, Schoenberg's lifelong fascination with numerology led to his morbid obsession with the number 13. Born in September 13th, he believed that 13 would also play a role in his death. Because the numerals 7 and 6 add up to 13, Schoenberg was convinced that his 76th year would be the decisive one. When that day came, he kept to his bed in an effort to reduce the chance of an accident. Shortly before midnight, his wife entered the bedroom to say goodnight and to reassure him that his fears had been foolish, whereupon... Schoenberg muttered the word harmony and died. What? Oh, my goodness. The time of his death was 11.47 p.m., 13 minutes before midnight, <laughs> on Friday, July 13th, in his 76th year. Wow. Oh, my goodness. That's a timely death. We're probably not going to top that, so thanks for starting the show with it. Okay. <laughs> uh, David Walczynski, thanks so much for joining us and for getting us started on our list show. Okay, good luck to you. All right, so let's get to it. Yes, our first list of the show comes from Emmy-winning comedy writer Opus Moreski. Mm. Among other things, this year he helped set the world record for the most people in a live comedy sketch. <laughs> but he's perhaps better known for his day job. Hello, I'm Opus Moreski. I'm a writer for the Colbert Report. I'm a raconteur and a man about town. Stand about six foot four. And I'm going to give you my list of the three funniest things of 2011. Number one would be uh, Louis, the Louis C.K. television program. I'm nothing if not predictable when it comes to comedy. Uh, everybody's loving this one, and uh, and there's a reason. It's because it's great. And in particular, I love the uh, season two opener this year. Louis kind of plays himself a divorced dad, and in the opening scene, he's helping his daughter brush her teeth, and uh, she mentions in a very angelic way how much she loves her mommy more than she loves him. I like mamas better because she makes good food. And I love her more, so I like being there more. And Louis just sort of takes it in a very grown-up way. Okay, let's rinse and spit it, right? Come here. Okay. There you go. All right, go get your iron PJs. Okay, baby. At which point, he gives her the middle finger. She can't see it, but oh boy, is it there. The amazing thing about it is that it shows such compassion and, and anger and that the two can exist together. We, we love the character, and he loves his daughter, and there's, he's got two daughters in the series, and most of the show is about his love for his daughters. But that doesn't mean they can't be jerks. Let's do it. Lock the gate! Uh, number two, there's been a lot of great comedy podcasts that have come out, including uh, Comedy Bang Bang and uh, and WTF, which is Mark Maron's podcast. It's time for WTF. What the f***? With Mark Maron. And my number two funniest thing would be a character named Bob Duca appearing on WTF. He is a uh, hypochondriac, new age, twice divorced ex-stepfather 
the character, who has appeared in several different podcasts and is played by Seth Morris, uh, lives in a shack behind someone's house at this point. He likes to go into long lists that defy patience, I would say, but in the most hilarious way. And on the WTF podcast, he was a guest and gave a list of his ailments that he's currently suffering from. Scabies. <laughs> Rabies. Mm. Mickey Rooney sugar babies. <laughs> Selective albinism. Canine-derived hip dysplasia. Anglocentric sickle cell anemia. And I'm a chocoholic. And it goes on from the ridiculous back to the real, veering wildly back to the ridiculous in such jarring fashion and with such a monotone voice. It's like a roller coaster ride in which you never go anywhere. You, you should look this up and enjoy it. Uh, number three is uh, Bridesmaids. Of course, a big hit movie. Uh, hilarious, but I would say that the funniest part about it is not that the movie was hilarious, which it was, but that the media decided that the storyline to cover this would be that women can be funny. As if suddenly we time warped from the 70s where Jim Belushi is finally proven wrong that women can be funny. Uh, by the way, the jury's still out on whether Belushi's can be funny other than John. Oh, jeez. Hey, shut my mouth. Look at the... Unbelievable. You must be Annie's fella. I'm Megan. It's a pleasure. Oh, well. he's not. Uh, I'm not. He's not. I'm not with him. Sorry. Oh. All right. I'm glad he's single because I'm going to climb that like a tree. I think part of the media response was that women can pull off dirty humor, R-rated humor, and they can lead a big comedy movie. But I don't think we should be shocked when Hollywood catches up with what pretty much everybody in America already knows. Uh, finally, a fourth one, if I could sneak one in, and I'm going to, whether you like it or not. I was on a taxi on the way over here, and I was talking to the taxi driver. We were talking about New York and how crazy it was, and he just went, ah, one, two, three, anything can happen in New York. I don't know what it meant, but my goodness, is that funny. Opus Moreski, he's an Emmy-winning writer for The Colbert Report, and that was his list of the four funniest things of 2011. And you can find links on our website to all the comedy he mentioned, except the taxi driver whose cab number he sadly failed to note. Too bad. Yeah, it's all at dinnerpartydownload.org. Look at me now. Brendan, turn off your cell phone so we can set up the next list, man. Actually, man, this is the next list. What? That's Look At Me Now by Chris Brown, All right. which is on Billboard's list of the most downloaded ringtones this year. Okay. That is number three. And believe it or not, cell phone rings are a pretty big deal. They make up a third of all online music revenue. It's like two plus billion dollars. Man, we need to release a ringtone. Let's do it. <laughs> exactly. But we'd have to compete with other ringtones like this one, Dirt Road Anthem, which is number two. It's a song written by Jason Aldean. From hip-hop to country, America is a diverse place. Yes. I'm proud. Where, according to those lyrics, it is cool to drive with a beer on your dashboard. Sure. And <laughs> Go number, America. And number one? Ah, song after my own heart. That's right. That is your fellow Pittsburgher, Wiz Khalifa. Yes. With a song about your hometown football team's colors, I believe. Go Steelers. Very nice. Except, Rigo, that is not the ringtone I heard on your phone this morning. But it's In you don't fact, have to. I think I think I should call you so we can hear what That's that is. That's not necessary at all. I'm sexy and I know it. <laughs> okay, it's the number one ringtone this week. Whatever. I host a culture show. <laughs> I have to be on top of these things. All right, we're gonna take a break. Coming yeah. up, New York Times film critic A.O. Scott with a list of films we bet you didn't see in 2011. Plus, The Onion lists the best fake news of the year when the dinner party returns. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan, and you are joining us in the midst of our first annual list show. Yes, tis the season when culture vultures distill the year into tidy lists of what they liked and what they didn't. Coming up, we learn that not all book of the year lists are created equal, and the folks from the Onion News Network list the best news stories that didn't actually happen. But first up, Mr. A.O. Scott. Along with Manola Dargis, he is one of the chief movie critics for the New York Times, which is actually a real newspaper. Weird. He just came out with his annual list of the best films of the year, and earlier this week, Rico talked with him about it. 
and A.O. Welcome. Hi, very nice to be with you. Now, before we get to what's on your list, I want to know a little about your process making it. <laughs> How hard is it to come up with this thing each year? It's, uh, you know, not not to complain about uh, a job that I love that no one would ever feel sorry for me about <laughs> complaining about. Um, it's brutal and, and miserable and agonizing. And it starts around May. Um, Damn. Where I'll be sitting in screening rooms and I'll just try every few weeks or so to keep a running list. So I don't forget my, uh, what I live in terror of. One of the things I live in terror of is December coming around and some wonderful movie that came out in mm. February that I will have forgotten about. And remembering all the movies you've seen in a given year must be no easy task. I mean, you've written, how what, hundreds of reviews this yes, year? Yes, I, I, I do see um, many more movies than is healthy for a functional adult to see. <laughs> This year, we published 762 oh movie reviews. Now, I had probably seen about half of those movies, which is still a lot, sure. you know, almost one a day averaged out. And I was just, you know, staying up nights worrying about the 300-odd the that I hadn't seen, <laughs> thinking, you know, somewhere in there, there may be the great lost masterpiece that I should be discovering. So, Have you had that experience in, in past years? <laughs> I have had an experience where, you know, a year later, I'll dig out a DVD and pop it in the machine and be like, oh, my God, this is great. <laughs> when did this come? Is this coming out? Is this, does this have a release? I, I got to write about this. And then I'll look, oh, Manola reviewed that three years ago. And it must so, be an especial hell for you because you have, you know, you're one of the most high-profile film critics in the world, so you can elevate a film out of obscurity. <laughs> Seriously, that's a lot of responsibility. Well, I can elevate it as far as semi-obscurity, I think. <laughs> All right, so the end of the year comes... You've hopefully kept a running tally of your favorite movies. Now it's time to make the list. And then it's always a question of how many, how am I going to sort them? I like to try, you know, this may be a terribly disappointing to some people or maybe a, a secret I shouldn't tell, but I, but I try for a certain amount of balance. You know, I, I like to have some foreign language films represented. I, I like documentaries. I mean, I, I would like my list ideally to represent the range of cinema as I've encountered it in the previous years, um, while still being true to my own very strong feelings of, of attachment to and preference for these movies. And, and it also, to me, in a way more maybe than other things that I write, feels very personal. You yeah. know, these, these are the movies that I'm still thinking about, that are still with me. Well, this hits upon something I've always wondered. Are these the best movies of the year to your mind or your favorite movies of the year? Because there's a difference, right? It's like they're, they're the movies that really broke new ground or will maybe be appreciated in years to come. And then there are the movies that you really liked this year. You know? I actually think that it's always too early to make that distinction. It will turn out in the future <laughs> that some movies have a life beyond their immediate moment. And we cannot... The record of critics in the history of criticism of predicting what those movies are is a source of disgrace. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's just terrible because we're not just embedded in our own subjectivity and our own taste, but also in our own moment. So there are movies that seem quite powerful and important and urgent now that may use themselves up in the future. A, a movie that I loved this year was Margin Call, about an investment bank right on the brink of the financial collapse of 2008. And I'm not sure, I don't know, um, when we look back at 2011, whether it will seem as, as urgent or as relevant. And, you know, Transformers 3, Revenge of the Fallen, when we find ourselves in the midst of an interplanetary war with gigantic toys, that movie may seem... It'll be relevant. And prophetic, even. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's get to your uh, to some of the things on your list. You're going to give us not your entire list, but right. three of the sort of lesser-known movies on the list that maybe our audiences are uh, unaware of. Yeah, I, I'd start with one that is a mainstream commercial release that I think was terribly overlooked, and that's Warrior, directed by Gavin O'Connor, um, starring Joel Edgerton and Tom Hardy and Nick Nolte. And Tom Hardy is going to be the next Mad Max, for those who don't know, by the way. Yeah, and, and this movie, it's about mixed martial arts fighting. Um, it has a certain amount in common with The Fighter. I think in some ways it's better than um, The Fighter that wow. came out last year. It's a, it's a, a melodrama about two brothers and a father. The story's a little bit, let's say, preposterous or, or implausible, but it's really uh, one of the best movies I've seen about what has happened to the American working class in the last 10 years. One of the brothers is an Iraq veteran. The other one is a school teacher who's underwater with his house. Um, you have all of the economic 
frustration and social dislocation of the last 10 years played out against this backdrop of fighting, of this very brutal, intense sport. They're putting us out of the house in three months. We're running out of options. Then they put us out of the house in three months. I'd rather go back and build an apartment than see you in the back of an ambulance again. I thought we agreed that we weren't going to raise our children in a family where their father gets beat up for a living. It was marketed, I think, much more as a tough action movie than the really powerful melodrama um, that it is. And really well directed. The climactic fight sequence is just one of the most breathtaking and emotionally effective action sequences, wow. maybe apart from War Horse that I, that I saw this year. But also it didn't catch on. It was maybe too dark and serious and brooding to catch on with the hardcore... <laughs> Fight enthusiasts. Yeah. Missed both audiences. That's heartbreaking. But it is getting some Oscar buzz, so maybe that film will get a second chance. Uh, Speaking of which, what is the second film on your list? Yeah, it's called Weekend. British movie. Two young men um, in England basically have a a one-night stand that turns into something more. And it's, it's one of the most honest and insightful and truest movies about sex and intimacy and the state of being young and and gay in the world today that that I've seen. A really unusual, really special movie. One of these movies that tells a very small-scale story and manages to feel like it's about so much more than just that story and just those characters. What kind of stuff is it you want me to say? Uh, Anything you like. Just talk about last night, you know, what happened, what you wanted to happen. It's up to you, really. It's for an art project. Yeah. And you're just going to lie there and record me speaking? Exactly. And people can listen to it? If you make the grade, yeah. Okay. Um, I saw you in the club, and I thought you were out of my league or whatever. And, um, yeah, we came back here, didn't we? And then you kissed me, said you took my shirt off. I just thought that we were having a really nice time. It was lovely. It was more than enough for me. So, um, sorry, Glenn, if I don't make you grade. I think that it played in a, in a few theaters in a few cities. It can be harder and harder to catch these small movies in theaters, but they have a much more accessible afterlife on video on demand and streaming. So I, I think that this one is still available, you know, through the IFC uh, video on demand or to cable subscribers and well worth checking out. All right, so Warrior Weekend, is there a third film that does not begin with W? Yes, there's a third one uh, with, with a longer title. It doesn't begin with W. Um, right. One of the strangest movies, I think, in a year with, with strange movies. I yeah. mean, this was a year one of my favorite movies was Tree of Life, which was kind of uh, crazy and ambitious and wild. Terrence Malick's film. Yeah, and, and also Miranda July's The Future. This is a movie called Le Quattro Volte, which means The Four Times, mm-hmm. by an Italian director named Michelangelo Fiammartino. And... There's also been a lot of attention to animals in movies this year. There's, there's been Warhorse and Tintin's dog Snowy and that cute <laughs> little dog in The Artist. Quattro Volte is, is hands down the best animal, the best performance by a goat <laughs> that you'll ever see in a movie. And, and, and that's saying something, yeah. And about a fourth of the movie is in unsubtitled goat language. Really? Yeah. It's, there's no human dialogue in the whole movie. And it's, you might say, you know, if you want it to be grand and philosophical about it, that it's about the way that the life force or the spirit of the universe migrates from human into animal and then into plant and then into inanimate forms. But it's actually also a very, very funny set of deadpan visual jokes, sometimes at the expense of these goats. But at first, when I first saw it, I thought it was going to be a kind of a dreary, miserable, neorealist, you know, (laughs) unhappy peasant movie. Um, (laughs) And I don't want to spoil it at all, because what happens as you watch it are are some of the most stunning sequences, not just involving goats, but snails, gigantic trees, and strange quasi-pagan religious festivals. Definitely a a good kind of head-trip freak-out movie. All right, a movie that has no human dialogue and is mostly in goat language, so perfect for radio. (laughs) A.O. Scott, thanks for the list. It's been my pleasure. Thanks. So, Rico, I don't know if you remember this, but earlier this year, we tried to interview the goat from that movie. Oh, uh, yes. But when we got him in the studio, um, yeah. he, he didn't say anything, and then he ate our microphone. Yeah. So. That's part of the reason <laughs> that that movie stayed under the radar, too, because yeah. he would not play. You know what I'm yeah. saying? Yeah, he ate the radar as well. It was bad. <laughs> Folks, 
If your computer has not been eaten by a goat, use it to visit our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. to eavesdrop. The earthquake in Japan, the death of bin Laden, the introduction of Denny's mac and cheese Big Daddy Patty Melt Sandwich, 2011 was filled with very real, very serious headlines. But today we listen in as the satirical news organization The Onion lists their favorite fake headlines of the year. And now a look back at the only things that happened this year. This has been the year 2011, and this is The Onion Year in Review. In September, the nation commemorated the 10th anniversary of 9-11 by toasting the stable government of Afghanistan from atop the gleaming 120-story Freedom Tower. Representatives from America's countless global allies gathered in the Dick Cheney Memorial Auditorium to heap praise on the United States for acting intelligently and responsibly in the wake of the Trade Center attacks, quickly eradicating Al-Qaeda while simultaneously bringing stability to the Middle East. The evening concluded with a cascade of red, white, and blue fireworks draping the night sky as George W. Bush, Donald Rumsfeld, Barack Obama, and others celebrated 10 years of unprecedented prosperity that could so easily have been disastrous. According to a report published this fall, researchers have definitively concluded that it, all of it, is some kind of sick joke. The Princeton study suggests that the entirety of existence, including time, marriage, migratory patterns of birds, continental drift, life itself, photosynthesis, human society, and the changing of the seasons, are all part of a massive twisted ruse orchestrated by a spiteful cosmos. Look at you morons taking this stupid video for your pointless newspaper. Everything's a joke. I'm a joke. You're a joke. The whole universe is a joke. Also this year, a drunken Ben Bernanke told everyone in a local bar how totally screwed the U.S. economy really is. The completely sloshed Federal Reserve chairman downed multiple beers and whiskey shots before launching into a slurred 45-minute diatribe about the depressed housing market and the quote rate of economic growth. An Onion reporter was able to capture this audio of Bernanke moments before he passed out. And I think uh, GDP will drop to nothing. Uh, and, and, I, and I share your, your concern. I share your anger. And lastly, in the year's most significant statistical study, researchers discovered this spring that 96% of humans would rather be a singing, dancing, animatronic bear. The study found that sitting on a plastic log, strumming a banjo, and singing songs on a stage with all your goofy bear friends is, for the vast majority of people on the planet, far preferable to one's current state of existence. Now for this year in tech, brought to you by LG. In October, the last American who knew what the f*** he was doing died while new Apple CEO Tim Cook unveiled his vision for the future of the company, saying, quote, I'm thinking printers. And this summer, a local man pushed the four millionth button of his life. Locally, a load of mulch was dumped in a pretty ballsy location. The town of Aspen united to help search for a missing ski. And according to a report, your mother is silently weeping about you at this very moment. It's been a long, hard year for all of us, but at least you handled it like a whiny, petulant little child and gave up at nearly every turn. This has been The Onion Review, and we will return in the new year. Until then, visit theonion.com newsbeat for more. 2011's most important fake news stories, according to the satirical news outlet The Onion, you're listening to The Dinner Party from APM, American Public Media, for real. All right, and we turn now from fictional news to just plain fiction. Uh, people still read novels. Oh. Yeah, sometimes even on actual paper. Uh, and critics still make lists of their favorites. 2011 has been no exception. Here are two critics discussing the same list-worthy book they read this year. First, we hear from Donna Seaman. She is senior editor of the American Library Association's magazine called, wait for it, Book List. One of my top novels of the year is The Submission by Amy Waldman. The novel begins with a group of people assembled by the city of New York to select the design for the 9-11 memorial. Pretty gutsy subject right there. They bring in the envelope because it's been anonymous. The head of the jury opens the envelope, and there's this gasp. The architect's name is Mohammed Khan. And there it is. 
the most painfully ironic situation imaginable after months and years of deliberation over the memorial, a Muslim architect. From the startling moment, which immediately brings out all the worst in people in terms of their fears and prejudices and their struggle to do their best to be fair, democratic Americans, Waldman then follows the thoughts and feelings of several people on the committee. And we also meet Mohammed Khan, who is not religious, a classic egotistical creative genius type, um, a very tricky character, brilliantly drawn. Like most of Waldman's characters, um, you know, they're not easily sympathetic or dislikable. They're complicated. You find yourself every bit as conflicted as the characters, which I always think makes for great reading. So The Submission by Amy Waldman is definitely on my list of strong and important novels of the year. It's a tremendously ambitious first novel. The Submission was on my list of the most overrated books of 2011. That's Alexander Nazarian. He writes for the New York Daily News and its book blog, Page Views. The reason I think the submission made so many top 10 lists is because people are desperate for that 9-11 novel that's going to capture the sound and the fury, not only of that day, but of the very difficult decade that followed. Waldman's book was perfectly marketed. It came out 10 years after the attacks, right after we had this deplorable business with the so-called mosque in Lower Manhattan. And so people wanted to believe it was a great book. Unfortunately, this isn't it. One of the things that bothered me is it's focused on this garden that Mohammed Khan, the architect, purports to build, but you never get a sense his design is worth fighting for, and you never get the sense that he's worth fighting for. Here's an example of where Waldman has an opportunity to soar with her language in describing the actual memorial, and I quote, A barrier of water would make for a more pleasing setback than a concrete plaza. A zigzag approach with views framed within walls could make arriving a visual adventure, end quote. In fact, you get no sense of that adventure from her writing about the proposed plans. So the furor around those plans comes to seem manufactured. To me, the most damning thing about the book is that the characters speak in platforms. They're nothing more than representatives of some belief. So her characters say things like, This is no time for multicultural pandering. Or they say, on the other hand, tolerance isn't stupid. Waldman is an excellent reporter, and you can see her journalistic mind at work in this book. Unfortunately, the book is a novel, not a retelling of fact. As such, the submission leaves you cold, like a windswept plaza, as opposed to the lush garden that architect Mohammed Khan proposes to build in Lower Manhattan. That book that sounds, book sounds awful. great. You're right. Maybe You're I right. should. Maybe read I it. shouldn't read it. You know, I'm confused what I'm supposed to think here. Well, we can both agree <laughs> that coming up, we are going to peer into the future and hear some lists of what we will be buying, what we'll be listening to, and what we will be eating. Blood is making an appearance on menus. It's not just for vampires anymore. All that and more when the dinner party returns. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan, and welcome back to our first annual list show. So far, we've featured loads of lists, looking back on the year that's just passed. Now it's time to get some lists of things we'll be seeing in the future. Yes, all week we have been eating just piles of fortune cookies. We've been consulting our magic eight balls and the farmer's almanac. And and actual human beings who keep up on trends, like Mitchell Davis, who is the vice president of the James Beard Foundation. Beard was, of course, a chef and a cookbook author, and Mm -hmm. the foundation educates people about food. So basically, Mitchell eats a lot for a living. Whoa, someone's moving in on our racket. (laughs) That's right. Not cool. But don't worry. Don't worry. He's working for us this week. Uh, See, on their blog, the Beard Foundation published a list of food trends they expect to take hold in 2012. Uh Yes. So I had Mitchell tell me about a few of them, like, for instance, that the cannelay would dethrone the cupcake. Unexpected, because I do not even know what a cannelay is. Right, which is the first thing I asked when I met Mitchell at Dominique Ansel's new bakery in New York City, where they make them. 
Candelet de Bordeaux, if you want to be t totally accurate, because it's a traditional pastry from Bordeaux, the wine region of France. And in fact, um, historically, Candelet have grown out of what the winemaking industry. The reason they're in Bordeaux is because they used to more often use egg whites to clarify wine, the claret, and the yolks would they turn into this batter that then baked into these Candelet, which look like little um, beehives or something with a dark, crunchy, caramelized exterior and a soft sort of almost crepe-like battery interior. And these look like they're placed in molds. They, they're kind of about two inches high, maybe an inch across, and they look like almost beautiful doorknobs, like glass doorknobs yeah. or something. That's, that's great. They do look like doorknobs. I'd never thought of that exactly. It's funny, just a few years ago, you started to see them outside of France. No one had ever heard of them before, but suddenly in some French restaurants, they would appear on little petit four trays, and then I would go to a friend's house, and suddenly they were popping cannelets out of silicon mat molds. And then while everyone's talking about cupcakes and now really actually more macarons here in the city, cannelets start to pop up all over the place, and I think they're, they're going to be the, the new, new cupcake of 2012. All right, well, let's talk about some of the other things you discussed. Well, everyone's talking about new Nordic cuisine and the restaurant Noma in Copenhagen, which has started this trend or actually cohered a trend really around it. Things were happening before then. But suddenly, new Nordic cuisine has sort of branched out of Nordic restaurants. And I think there are all these ingredients that we're going to start to see more and more on menus. Um, I've recently ate bark flour pastries and bark flour pancakes, and apparently it's a very intricate, complicated process to turn bark into something edible rather than just cellulose or wood. Real bark, like tree bark, is now being incorporated into dishes. For some reason, that does that seems alien to me. Yeah, well, I, get, I mean, what is what is wheat but grass, you know, so why not? I, in some ways, I don't know. And, and, and there are all these stories. My guess is there might have been a shortage of wheat or maybe they didn't have wheat in Scandinavia. And so now they're, they've refound bark or something. I mean, you've got to ask yourself about any food ingredient, why do it? Is it worth it rather than just something curious on the menu? And at a certain level of restaurant, at the highest level, they're always looking for something different and new. All right, bark, and you also mentioned another intriguing ingredient that you've been seeing emerge, which is on the other end of the, the phylum. Yeah, so blood is making an appearance on menus. Like real, actual animal blood? Well, I mean, not human blood, at least I don't think so, but pig blood and, and different animal blood. And, and blood is a funny substance because it, it coagulates, I mean, like it, very much like it does in a person. And so you can use it to thicken sauces, which is a very classic old European way to cook. But now I've been served little cups made of blood and little crusts and pancakes made of blood. And on, the, on one level, it's delicious, actually. It's very flavorful. Um, on the other level, it has the texture of a scab, a friend of mine once mentioned, and that sort of put us off a little bit. But still tasty, and, and ultimately, you know, why not? We, we use the euphemism of juice when we're eating a rose, but when we're talking about the juices of a rose, we're talking about blood. I guess that's, yeah, that's true. I hadn't thought, do you think this is anything to do, I mean, or is this in a completely different world of, like, the popularity of Twilight and kind of vampire <laughs> culture? Oh, I would love to think so. I, I can see a lot of theme parties happening just right now as you say that. I mean, it could also be an extension of the nose-to-tail movement, which we've seen people have taken great interest in butchering and getting closer to kind of the cuts of meat they are eating. Yes, I think that's actually more the trend that it comes out of. And, and again, it, it is part of a classic cuisine. And I was traveling once with uh, Daniel Bolu in Japan, and I remember a very um, formative interaction between him and this Japanese chef who ran a, a yakitori restaurant, a chicken restaurant. They shared this story about Daniel growing up in a farm where for breakfast his mother would make pancakes from the chicken's blood. It was like an omelet, only there were no eggs. The blood thickens and you would fry it with onions and it was so delicious. And the Japanese chef was so intrigued by this because in a yakitori restaurant they use every part of the chicken, the, the butts, the beaks, the, you know, practically everything you can eat. I think butts to beaks is the equivalent of nose to tail. <laughs> in a bird, I guess. You know, even though I've heard those stories and I know those classic dishes, it's been a long time since I've seen it on a few menus, and it's, you're starting to see it. And it's even coming out in cookbooks. There's a new book called Odd Bits by Jennifer McLaughlin, um, a James Beard Award-winning author. And so um, I think it, in some places, I'm not sure if it's nationwide, but in New York City, it's illegal to sell blood. Um, it can't be a traded animal part. But in other places, it can be. And I think, it's gonna, I think the world's going to change about blood. I wonder if blood, too, isn't part of the new Nordic cuisine, because, you know, there's the big heavy metal culture. Like, so maybe with, with sacrifice and cannibalism, it could be. Viking. Maybe they came by it honestly foraging. <laughs> well, I'm sure there will be a press release somewhere that says they did, whether or not they did. As someone who monitors this food trends, is there just 
is there just a constant search for other? Absolutely, there's no question. In a city, in this city in particular, in this country, maybe there are an estimated 350,000 restaurants. The ones at the top need to stand out in some way. And unfortunately, it's not always possible to do it just by serving delicious food. Unlike Italy, for instance, or even Japan, where people make the same things, you know, you sort of play the same notes, but you just do it your way. So sushi restaurants serve the same fish. And in Italy, you know, every restaurant in Piedmont serves the same Piedmontese dishes. They just do them their own way. But at a higher level, at this global level of restaurants, you've got to distinguish yourself somehow. I mean, whole movements are created um, at, at, in this echelon that then people at all of the levels of eating follow. And and we, we've just left the world of molecular gastronomy, or we're on our way out of molecular gastronomy, or modernist cooking, or techno-emotional cooking, whatever you want to call it. And this return to foraging, this return to every part of the animal, is about economics as much as it's about trends. Well, um, Mitchell, thank you so much for joining us. And maybe next, in 2013, we can check in and see how these trends played out. I would love to, but don't put any money on them. <laughs> wow, Brendan Bark, blood. <laughs> Forgive me, but 2012 seems kind of bleak. I know. <laughs> it's sad. Don't, don't forget the doorknobs. It's going to be a tasty mm. new year. Mm. <laughs> All right, we turn now from the world of food, I think, to the world of design, a field where maybe more than any other, they're always looking forward into the future. And my guest is Debbie Millman. She's host of the design radio show called Design Matters. She's president emeritus of the American Institute of Graphic Arts, and she is president of design at the brand consultant Sterling Brands. Debbie's going to give us a look at what 2012 will look like, quite literally. <laughs> and Debbie, welcome. It's great to be here. So this is a list of stuff designers will be giving us to look at, touch, operate in the coming year. Futuristic stuff, can we say that? I think we can. I think that we're getting to a place now in our culture where pretty much everything we've seen on Minority Report is going to be <laughs> manifested. It's all going to be happening, and it's all going to be happening in the next couple of years. Minority Report being the sci-fi movie. Yeah. The biggest innovation that we're going to see is the increase of what uh, Google is doing now with the driverless cars. Driverless cars. Driverless cars. Google I've heard about this, but this is going to happen? It's happening as we speak. The Google team already created a robotic vehicle that they named Stanley. After Kubrick? Yes, yes. Oh, man. That's what you want to do when you put machines in control of how you travel is like yeah. name it after the guy who invented Hal. Exactly. <laughs> Paint me a picture here. Am I steering this car with like a device from my home or do I program it to drive somewhere on its own? You'll program it in the same way that you would program a GPS to, to give you the best route to get somewhere. And rather than have to navigate it yourself, the car will navigate for you and take you there without you having to steer the wheel. And can I see these in action somewhere? Um, the Nevada Department of Transportation is now creating safety and performance standards, thank you, and designating areas where driverless cars can be tested. So I see. We're not seeing them on the like highways yet. On the strip. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Cruising by the Bellagio. Exactly. Things are strange enough on that strip than exactly. seeing ghost cars. But it's kind of amazing because you can see the benefits. Cars will spend a lot less time being idle. You could have your driverless car take you to work, go back home, take your kids to the soccer game. I mean, what's going to happen to all the soccer moms? out there. Oh, man, I never thought of that. That's an entire voting class that will be eradicated. <laughs> exactly. We'll have to find a new name for them. And you, you think that this is going to spread beyond Nevada in 2012? We'll see. I, I predict by 2020 we'll be all driving or passengers in driverless cars. All right. Let's see. Um, meanwhile, Number two is... Number two is a color. So Pantone, the famous color company, chooses a color every year to be the color of the year. And this year they have chosen Tangerine Tango. They do this in advance? Oh, yes. It's not based on what people actually want. They just kind of project. Oh, no, 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 no. This is very much prescribed. And and they chose it because of what they call its sophisticated and dramatic undertones. And this specifically they're saying that it gives an energy charge to move forward. So I think it's really about optimism, Rico. And God knows we could use some of that. I, I assume this is going to be kind of a bright 
orange color? Kind of? Yes, it's a it's an orangey color with maybe a tiny bit of red in a tiny bit of purple. By the way, where are we going to see? I mean, are they saying that this is something that people are going to be painting their houses with, or is this well, something we'll see in graphic design? No, you'll probably see it first on the runway. That's where the so the colors go out to designers, and that's not just fashion design as well. It's also interior design. Um, you probably won't see it so much painted on the outside of houses, but you will see it on the inside. You'll probably see in the spring collections lots of orange. You'll probably see a little bit of it over the summer. Um, then you'll it'll you'll start seeing it in Bed Bath and Beyond, and then after Bed Bath and Beyond, you'll see it in the sort of you know casual corner. <laughs> get get ready. To, get ready. 2012 is looking bright. Literally. Yeah, I think brands like Hermes will be happy too because that's their color, and then people will be uh, looking to them for the um, badge value of wearing tangerine tango. Hermes is, is known for using that color? Their color is orange. It's a deeper orange, a more rustic orange, but it's orange nevertheless. Lucky them. All right, uh, number three on your list. I think that the, the most fun uh, gadget that I've seen all year is something called the Flyboard. And a guy named Frankie Zapata from Zapata Racing has created a jetpack that you wear on your back. Wait, sort of we, like we have a jetpack. There is a jetpack. He's created a jetpack. <laughs> Why didn't you it's, start with this? Um, it is a jetpack which you wear in your back in the water, um, but it's sort of like Iron Man meets the Jetson. So it allows you to simultaneously fly and swim <laughs> like a dolphin. Wait, can you describe what this thing looks like? I mean, is it like a thing you attach on your back and it fires thrusters? Yeah, exactly. It looks like you were going scuba diving, but you, there's also a hose attached to it to some type of boat that's providing the power. And then you go in uh, and out of the water like a dolphin. So, so there's like a boat with a tube coming out of it and it connects to this thing on you. And it yes. shoots water out that I guess allows you to hover or something. Exactly. All right. Well, th- we'll see if that catches on. Is that? Are you? Do you think that's something that like you know the average Joe is gonna, is going to have? What if I don't live near water? Actually, it's really fun to watch. I think more people will watch it, but I don't see a lot of people buying it. All right. The next maybe X Games 2012, we'll see a new sport. Wouldn't that be fun? Design expert Debbie Millman, thanks so much for telling us what we're going to be seeing next year. Oh, my pleasure. And we've got video of the flyboard on our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. It's a lot more cumbersome and waterbound than Iron Man's rocket thrusters. But hey, before the Porsche came the Model T, right? That's right. Enrico, I predict in the future we're going to have robot cars with jetpacks, oh. painted orange, <laughs> just flying all over the place. <laughs> wow. going to be amazing. <laughs> Sounds actually kind of garish. It's going to be both types of loud. All right, ladies and gentlemen, so we learned about what we'll be seeing and what we'll be eating in the year ahead, but what will we be listening to? I wonder. Besides way too many presidential campaign commercials. It's already begun. Uh, To get a list of what 2012 will sound like musically, we asked a professional. Hi, my name is Matthew Schnipper. I'm the editor-in-chief of The Fader magazine. We talk about what's next in all genres of music. Basically, if you want to find out what will be happening in the future, you can ask us. Here are four records coming out in the beginning of 2012 that we're excited about. Janae Aiko is a woman who put out a mixtape in the middle of 2011, and at the end of the year, she signed to Def Jam. She's got a beautiful voice, very, very thin, super mellow. I've kind of always been taken by music that sounded despondent, and that's kind of exactly what she was, she's was she been doing. So surprised to see that she signed to Def Jam, honestly. She seemed like she might be a little too, a little too, maybe a little too odd for kind of a mainstream R&B radio. Who knows what's going to happen on her major label project, but if she has any songs that are like Stranger, which is the opening track to Sailing Souls, we'll all be in luck. Something completely different that actually has a release date is ITAL. ITAL is the solo project of Daniel Martin McCormick, formerly of a lot of other bands, mostly with vocals, and here's the first time that it's actually gone instrumental. <laughs> Uh, 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 uh,
He has an EP coming out in the early part of the year on Planet Mew, the label run by the artist Musique. It's called Hive Mind, and it's it's kind of creepy. A lot of electronic music obviously sounds pretty clean. That's the nature of it. You've got machines to make it. It's going to sound perfect. He's managed to make something that should sound pretty clean sound really gross. In a micro-genre way, I suppose it's it's something close to house. He's got a big following in UK and Europe, and hopefully that'll replicate itself here. Something completely different that I'm excited and super curious about is Ceremony's debut album on Matador Records. Matador is a really classic indie label, home of pavement and cat power. A lot of bands that are great that you like and so do so do other people that listen to National Public Radio, as you should. Ceremony does not come from the same, they don't come from the same background, essentially. They started as a hardcore band. With their last record, Ronert Park, they took a sidestep away from the super aggressive kind of hardcore that they've been known for into the kind of just regular aggressive rock that I think they're going to make on their new record. So it's just occurred to me that all of this music is actually a huge bummer. If you don't want to hear so much bummer music, there may be some happier music coming out in 2012. Sainty Gold has a new album. It's been four years somehow since her debut. It will certainly be awesome. The XX have an album coming in the summertime. They're recording it now. They were a huge surprise hit, and I would be shocked if it wasn't a number one record when it comes out. Enrico, this is a tune from the XX off their first album, and I'm totally looking forward to the new one. Likewise, and uh, we should mention that that list of music to come came courtesy of Fader Magazine's Matthew Schnipper. By the way, Brendan, I love that he thinks the ceremony tune is just, quote, normally aggressive. Yeah, yeah. I found it pretty soothing, you know, (laughs) bordering on dad rock mellow. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) if your dad's an ultimate fighting champion. All right, that's the dinner party for this week, our first annual list episode. We hope you liked it. And there's one more list we'd like to share with you before you go. It's the people we'd like to thank for helping us with the show. Jackson Musker, our assistant producer. Also thanks to Ravi Carmen, Peter Clowney, Ellen Gettler, Craig Curtis, Judy McAlpin, and Samsara Riley. Also thanks in advance to all of you for subscribing to our podcast. It's at dinnerpartydownload.org. See you next year, i.e. next week. Bon appétit. Thanks for attending the dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And I would just like to now just state just a few of the ailments from which I suffer. Fibromyalgia. Lockjaw. I'm hyper-tolerant of lactose. Dirt belly. Bone worm. And type Wilfred Brimley diabetes. <laughs>